If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, and again, we are winding down now our look at these threefold offices of Christ, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. And so if you notice on your handouts, there's actually two sides to it. Uh, the first side sort of finishes up our look at the kingly office, which is, I'm hoping, what we're going to get through this evening. And then next week, we'll likely consider the second half of this, uh, which is sort of summing up everything. And Hebrews chapter 4 does a good job, the writer of Hebrews does a good job of pointing us to all, four, all three of Christ's offices. And so I'd like us to begin in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 16. And, and if we're not going to possibly, we're probably not going to get to this this evening, but at least he can have you meditating on and thinking about it uh, throughout the week. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In this passage, we actually see all three offices referenced. We see the office of Christ as prophet, speaking of the Word of God, in which Christ continues to speak today. Earlier on in this passage, um, the author of Hebrews calls us to um, not harden our hearts when we hear the Word of God. It speaks of the priestly work of God as He as he identifies Christ as the great high priest, the one who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And he speaks of Christ in his conquering power as king, as he is the one who is tempted like as we are, but what makes him different from us is that although we are so often weak, as we are so often failing in sin, Christ has conquered. He is without sin. And so next week, likely, we'll look in more detail at the wonderful hopes that we can gain from looking at Christ fully in his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. But this evening, we're going to be focusing again on the kingly office. Now we have, as we've done with all three of these offices, both prophet, priest, and now king, we have sought to uh, trace the description of the office, the way in which uh, Old Testament figures uh, were types of the greater fulfillment of these offices in Christ. We've actually tied all three of these offices back to a creation mandate that Adam and Eve were created to be prophets. Adam, given the word of God, called to proclaim it to Eve. Eve would then in turn be required to proclaim that to her children. That Adam was to serve as the priest for his household. And that Adam and Eve had unfettered, unrestricted access to God in the same way that a priest has access to God. And then we see finally that the kingly office is given to them. They're called and commanded by God to exercise dominion, to, to subdue the earth and to exercise that dominion over it. And of course in sin we see them failing in all three of these actions or the, on all three of these offices through their actions and sin, and then Jesus, or then God the Father giving this great promise of the curse reverser, the one who would come and would perfectly meet all three of these offices. And so as we trace this through and we looked at how Christ is the perfect prophet, we looked at how Christ is the perfect priest, and we looked at how Christ is the perfect king, we, looked, we now are looking to see, as we've done with all the other two, how Jesus' kingship is seen today. How is Jesus' king, kingship seen 
today. And we sort of touched on this a little bit in our study of Acts chapter 2, and we're going to actually look back at, uh, at some of those passages this evening as well. But I want us to first recognize and realize an objective fact. Jesus is king today. This is an undisputable truth. Now, despite what the world would have you believe, despite the world seeking to place up either political figures, um, nations, states, or in our day and age, ourselves as the ones who are ruling and reigning, the reality is Jesus is king. This is a fundamental truth that should alter everything about you. And whether or not you deny that Jesus is king, that doesn't make a change in the reality that Jesus is king. We see this, first of all, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where we see Jesus is king by the way in which he administers creation. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds or is upholding the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In fact, here in Hebrews chapter 1, we see all three of these offices described. He is the one who is the Word incarnate, the prophet given. He is the one who has made purification for sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And He is the King of the universe. The writer of Hebrews clearly identifies Jesus Christ as the one who is upholding all things by the word of His power. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. He is the one who by right owns and rules and is sovereign over this entire universe. You realize that when it speaks of Him upholding all things by the word of His power, that refers to the very most minute aspects of this universe we live in. Why do our atoms clump together to form a person? Why do our atoms not just explode everywhere? Why, why is the earth where it is in what they call the Goldilocks zone, where it's just the perfect amount of, of, uh, of distance from the sun to um, allow life to consist on the earth? Why do our, our cells operate the way they operate? Why do our lungs take the oxygen from the air and, and transfer it into energy into the cells that go throughout the rest of our body? Why, why does our heart beat? Why, why is anything continuing? Because Christ is King. And His kingship is seen in the way in which He continues to administer creation. He is the one who is upholding, holding everything together by the word of His power. And then we see that this reality, particularly after he has made purification for sins, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a reference to the throne in which he has taken. He is there seated. He's seated in a place where he is ruling and reigning over all creation. In fact, this idea of being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high is discussed in, in some pretty vivid detail in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. John is taken into heaven. He sees the glory of God the Father. He sees God the Father ruling and reigning on His eternal sovereign throne. And then there is this scroll that is brought out. And the scroll that is brought out is, is the unraveling or the un unveiling of all of God's kingdom plans for this universe. And there's a voice that cries out in heaven, who is worthy to open the scroll? And there is silence. And John begins to weep. Is there no one 
who has the authority and has the right to administer God's plan for redemption and for His kingdom in this earth. One of the elders comes to John. He puts his hand on him and he gives him, he tells him two words, weep not. Why? For the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he can take the scroll and open its seals. And then he looks and he sees a lamb standing as though he has been slain. And there's this glorious image where the Father, the father who, is, who is in control of all things, the, the cosmic sovereign, gives, or actually the Son comes and takes the scroll from the hands of the eternal King. And He opens and unravels what we find in the rest of the book of Revelation. The purpose of God for His kingdom on earth. Who is it that has that right? Christ. He is the one who is bringing all things and working all things after the counsel of His good will. There's a wonderful hope in that kingdom plan that those who are in Christ by faith, we have great hope, we have great joy. But as you continue through the book of Revelation, while there is much said to those that are followers of Christ in that book, that book does not only focus on the works of the Lamb for the church. What else does the Lamb do in that book? He administers and brings about and guides all things in the earth. You have nations falling. You have people crying out to the mountains to hide themselves and to fall upon them. You have innumerable amounts of things happening from a cosmic level. The sun being darkened, the moon turned to blood, the stars falling from the heavens. And all of this proceeds from the mouth of the Lamb who is King. This this vision of who Christ is as He is the one who is actively administering creation, it should terrify those who would rise up against Him. Because He is King. And He will not permit rebellion. He will not permit those who rise up against His reign to remain that way forever. And so we have Christ who is the King of the universe. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize, particularly the book of Revelation, which is written to these seven churches in Asia Minor, and each of those churches is struggling with different things. They're having, they have their own sin struggles themselves. But, but in, those, in those commands and in those things given to them and in this this story of what Christ is doing, there is great hope for God's true people. Because particularly for the church in Asia Minor, things did not look like Christ was reigning on the throne from an outward appearance. They were persecuted. They were suffering for the name of Christ. There was a society that they lived and moved in that was riddled with corruption, riddled with Moral decay riddled with perversion. And they could look at their surrounding um, environment and come to a conclusion that where is Christ in all this? And the book of Revelation comes in and says Christ is still on the throne. So we need to make sure we never forget this reality. Despite what you may perceive in the world around you, your heart may mourn the sinful choices of our society. You may yourself face derision and persecution. You may have friends that turn away from you because of your fealty to Christ. And it's in those times where you can feel like our cause is hopeless. But it's not. Because the Lamb is on the throne. And so as the writer of Hebrews tells us, He is actively holding this entire universe together. And as John tells us in Revelation, 
He is the one who is unfolding God's plan. He is the only one who has that right to open the scroll and to break the seals. So Jesus is actively administering creation. Secondly, we see that Christ, although He is the cosmic ruler of all things, He is particularly the King of His people. And He is ruling and reigning on the throne of David. Now we looked at this in some, to some length the last couple weeks. And we, we spent some time looking in Acts chapter 2 and, and Peter's sermon there at Pentecost, which is the, the capstone event that launches what we call the church as the Spirit has come upon God's people. And in that sermon, we find Peter saying this about David quoting and speaking of Christ. David, who is... Someone who prefigures Christ in that he is a prophet, a priest, and a king. And particularly here, he speaks of David the king as a what? Prophet. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. What did David look forward to and see? He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. As Christ is the king of the universe, he is particularly the king of his people. God had made a promise to David, I will have one of your seed, one of your descendants to sit on your throne forever. And David, in full confidence of that, writes in the Psalms of this day where the, the God will say to his Lord, sit on your throne until I make your enemies your footstool. And Peter takes that and says, what is David saying? He's saying that though he was not allowed to let his body see corruption, he did not abandon his soul to Hades or the realm of the dead, but he raised him from the dead so that he could, in that resurrection, sit on that throne eternally. So when he saw that one of his descendants would sit on that throne, he saw Christ raised from the dead. And actually, Peter will go on to say that that of this fact, he and the other apostles that are there on the day of Pentecost are witnesses along with the crowds of what God has done. For the Messiah to reign eternally on David's throne, he would have to have victory over death. He would have to exercise dominion over it, and he did. The resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of David's hope. And so Peter concludes, this is the final thing that he drives home, he hammers the nail home with this last statement in this sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him the Lord, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord being King, Christ being Messiah. And this happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is Christ and King. And so, this is a position that Jesus holds eternally. So while He is the King of the universe, He is more particularly the King of His people. We looked This morning in Deuteronomy where Moses charges Israel and and speaks to them of the exalted place they have among all the other nations of the earth. Why is that? Because there is no other nation that has the God so near to it as Yahweh is to His people. There is no other nation to whom God has spoken and given His righteous rules, but Israel. That there is a special relationship between God as King and those who are His particular, peculiar covenant people. 
And what we see happening here and what Peter is pointing to in Acts chapter 2 is the reality that Christ has expanded that kingdom so that the church is not simply made up of Jews, but that it also reaches to Gentiles and that the kingdom of God encompasses people from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue. So that while Christ is the cosmic king, he is especially the king of his people. So that we who have fled to Christ for hope can find strong encouragement and hope in the midst of these difficult times. Not only do we know that Christ is going to set everything right, but he is going to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that we are the benefactors of that. That, to this, that at this moment, in this place, Jesus Christ is in heaven, ruling and reigning on the throne of David. That He is King of His people. There is no more a fear that we will have corrupt, sinful kings. When you think of the kings of Israel, what do you think of as the best king? Who comes to your mind as the best king of Israel? Everyone's like, eh. David. Scriptures describe him as a man after God's own heart. What did David do? Wonderful things by God's power. But he also did terrible things as a fallen sinner. He had... At, at the least amount, he had an affair with Bathsheba. If you understand the culture and the time and the age in which there was certainly an exertion of power over her in that moment, so that it could even possibly be defined as sexual assault. When she ends up pregnant by him, he continues to push his way through and has her husband killed. We see he plays favorites with his sons. There are issues in the way in which he administers justice. And, and David, the pinnacle of the kings of Israel, a man after God's own heart, he is still only a man. And he fails. His son comes up after him. And his son, who is the king of God's kingdom, is a man who seeks wisdom. And for a majority of his reign, applies that wisdom, but he doesn't always apply it correctly. His heart goes after other women and their gods. He heaps up to himself concubines and wives. And in his old feeble age, he's taken advantage of and he doesn't exercise wisdom, bringing about in the next kingdom, the next two kings, a civil war that leaves thousands dead and will will lead to conflict between the northern and the southern kingdom until the day in which both kingdoms are taken captive and carried away by heathen nations. These are the best of the kings among men. Do you realize that today, those who have faith in Christ alone for their salvation, you are in a kingdom that is is being ruled and reigned over by a Christ who has never committed sin. You have a king who will always faithfully execute justice. You have a king who Isaiah describes as a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the one in whom the government will be upon His shoulders, and He will faithfully exercise that role as King. And that's happening today. He is a good King. He is a perfect King. And if you are in Him by faith, He is your King. 
And so there's this wonderful hope that in the resurrection of Christ, God has made this Jesus who was crucified by the crowds in Jerusalem, both both King and Christ, Lord and Christ, King and Messiah. So Christ is ruling on David's throne today. And then the final thing that we see is that Christ leads His people in conquest. Christ leads His people in conquest. We see this particularly in the amazing confession of Peter when Jesus turns to them and asks them who people say He is. Jesus had a following. That following was beginning to dwindle. People were turning away from Him. And so He turns to the disciples and He asks them, Who do men say that I am? And the disciples say, Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. Some say that you're even John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. And then Jesus comes and pointedly asks the disciples, But who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, You are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds to him and says, Simon, son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah, Simon, son of John, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And then he says this, I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the proclamation of a king. Peter's proclamation of Jesus Christ does not merely bring salvation, but it also speaks of Christ's dominion work. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ then reveals how He is going to build the church. And the church is the modern day, the way in which in this age, the kingdom of God is expressed. It's expressed through the people of God, which are the church. Those who are called out from the world and taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. That is the church. How does Christ ensure that His church will progress? That it will have conquest? That it will rise victorious over its enemies because Christ is the one who builds it. And those who confess Him as Peter confesses Him are rocks that He uses to build this church. And as Christ is building this church, working among His people in the church to bring that about, the very armies of hell itself cannot conquer Christ's kingdom. Though the gates of hell gape against Christ's kingdom, they will not win. The kingdom of darkness, the armies that issued from the gates of hell, will never see victory over Christ and His kingdom. You you realize that Jesus sort of gives away the end of the story here? Who's going to win? Christ! Christ! His kingdom. In fact, the book of Revelation is a a book of such encouragement for God's people because you have these people that are suffering and it seems like the world is winning, but the reality is that when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus wins. The King wins. And Jesus is saying that all the way back here to Peter. And so as Christ is king, he is a king who is bringing conquest through the church. Now, how does he bring this conquest? It's interesting. Later on in Christ's ministry, as he is about to be arrested, as he is actively being arrested, Peter seeks to fight back. And what does Peter grab? His sword. 
He grabs his sword and he, he swings it and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. And Jesus looks at Peter, and we looked at this, I think this was last week, and said, put away your puny sword. Don't you know, I, I could call legions of angels to come, and they, they're not going to stop these people. If you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. So we must always remember that Christ's kingdom does not find conquest through violence in any way, shape, or form, nor is it through political intrigue or political activism that we see the kingdom of God come into earth, nor is it through our own adherence to the principles of the kingdom that bring about the kingdom here on earth. You know what brings the kingdom to earth? The proclamation of the gospel. Because what is it that showed that Peter had been conquered as, though, as one who was gaping and fighting against Christ and is now a confessor of Christ? What is it that was that change? His faith in Christ. And so how does the kingdom of God advance on the earth today? It is through people coming to personal faith in Jesus Christ, confessing exactly what Peter confesses. That is how the kingdom of Christ advances on this earth. And it is an advancement. It is a movement that is unstoppable. So we've seen what Christ's Activity is today. He is king by administering creation. He is king ruling and reigning on David's throne. And he is a king leading his people through conquest as the gospel is proclaimed. So now, what does that mean for us? What is the call for the church, the, the way in which the kingdom of God is exhibited today? What is it that we are to be doing? How does the kingship of Christ affect us on a day-to-day basis? And that's where we look at really what Jesus is doing as prophet and as priest and as a king. He is seeking to restore us to the offices that we were originally created to be. As prophet, perfect prophet, he, call, he charges us to take his message and to prophesy, not by foretelling, but by foretelling the truth of Christ to the world around us. As priest, he calls upon us to depend upon his priestly work and to be priests ourselves to God, that we all are priests of God. And our, the temple of God is now in us, in our bodies. And then, as king, we have the dominion mandate restored to us. Remember those words given to Adam and Eve to take this world that God had created for them and to exercise dominion over it, to subdue it, to be the victorious rulers of all that God has created. Well, the church today has that same charge. How are we to do this? And there's um, four things I'd like us to consider this evening. The first is that the church prayerfully depends on Christ's kingship. The church prayerfully depends on Christ's kingship. When we think about prayer... Where do our minds often go when we think about prayers in the Bible or how we're to pray? What do we think of? What we call the Lord's Prayer, which is probably mislabeled. It is more appropriately should be called the Disciples' Prayer because it is the prayer that God's disciples, Christ's disciples are to pray. And, And we know it well. We cry out to our Father which is in heaven. We seek for His name to be hallowed and then we pray what's the first request your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven 
To pray your kingdom come recognizes a dominion work that we are members of. However, we must never think that we are the ones who through dependence on human effort bring this about. We pray your kingdom come. Now we have to always remember that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. In fact, to pray your kingdom come is to pray that the sovereign God would bring His rule to be evidenced clearly as it is in heaven. When when we see images in Scripture of when people are taken into heaven, is there any question as to who is on the throne? No. Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He's on His throne. John sees the Father on the eternal throne forever. Whenever we see heaven in view where God dwells, it is undeniable that He is King. So what is the prayer, Your kingdom come? It is that on earth, that same realization would be obvious to those who dwell upon the earth. Now, we have to recognize that as we pray, your kingdom come, we are not praying for a political revolution. We are not praying for a violent overthrow of a government that is chocked full of corruption. Listen, no government of men is going to avoid corruption. All you have to do is is take History 101... And you'll see that every single government in human history is corrupt, including this country. Now, I praise God for the freedoms we have in this country. I praise God for what He's done here. But this country is still a country and a kingdom that is founded by men and is run by men. And so we need to push aside the call that people would have us believe today that we can bring the kingdom of God through political revolution or even through violence and overthrow of the current corrupt governments. We must remember that Christ is building the church. He is building the church. And so when we pray for Him to build the church, we are praying for Him to build it in the way He has designed it to be built. Again, Jesus could come today with legions of angels and set everything wrong in America right. Could He not do that? But He hasn't chosen to do that. You know what He has chosen to do? To take His people and to use them to bring about the growth of His kingdom, the advance of His kingdom, through individual faith in Christ. And so, our prayer should be, Your kingdom come. As Jesus tells His disciples, look at the fields. They're white unto harvest. So how does this conquest work of Christ works? Pray that the Lord of the harvest would throw laborers into the harvest. You know, when we pray that prayer, when we pray for either Jesus to send people to share the gospel or we're praying for His kingdom to come, you know where we should first look for that work to be done and accomplished? In ourselves. Use me, Lord, to bring Your kingdom on earth. Use me to be one that is sent out to share the gospel to those who are still lost in the darkness of this present kingdom. So the church prayerfully depends on Christ's kingship. Secondly, the church is entrusted with binding and loosing. Now this is a, this is a passage that is somewhat difficult to look at and to understand. This is perhaps would fit in, although this isn't written by Paul, I think this would fit into um, what Peter is describing as hard things to understand. 
Because just on the heels of Jesus saying, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, he says this to Peter and by implication, all the apostles and by further implication, the church of God. He gives to the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever we bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever we loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Well, I think one thing we have to recognize is that Christ is making a a stunning statement and something that to some extent we push back against, particularly as Protestants, but we cannot get around the fact that Jesus is saying access to the kingdom is given to those in the kingdom. Access to the kingdom is given to the church. Well, wait a second. What do you mean by that? Well, the church is tasked with a responsibility to bind and to loose. Now, it's important for us to recognize what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that He is endowing an organization or a particular individual with this power to loose and to bind so that the apostles or that um, as the Roman Catholic Church would take this passage and make it to mean that the magisterium, particularly the Pope, has this power to determine who gets in and who gets out. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, if we read on in the book of Revelation, Jesus still retains the keys of the kingdom. Revelation chapter 1, 17-18. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am, this is Christ speaking, the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, and who shut, who shuts, and no one opens. And Isaiah in a prophecy speaking of a man that would come and be a type of Christ who who upon him he would place the key of David. He will open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. So what is Jesus saying here in this passage when he tells us that the church, the apostles, the, the, the church by implication, is given the keys of the kingdom and given this ability to loose and to bind. Now, I think that the the implications here for the dominion mandate are clear. We have a responsibility to show people and to tell people how they can enter the kingdom and what it is that will exclude them from the kingdom. That is the key. And what is the kernel of truth in that key? It is what Peter just confessed. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything else rises and falls on what you do with that statement. Those who accept it, they are loosed from the bondage they have in the kingdom of darkness. Those that reject it are bound And if they persist in their rejection of Christ as King and Savior, they will one day find themselves bound to a fate of eternal fire that will never be quenched. So how do we exercise this dominion mandate? How do we go about telling people about this work? And the answer is sharing the gospel. In the same way that we pray for Christ to send the kingdom and we seek to be a part of that, we now see Jesus actually entrusting us with the very keys of the kingdom, entrusting us with the message of Christ. And we see this most clearly demonstrated in the first thing that Peter preaches. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the crowds are cut to the heart. 
They've realized they've rejected the king. They've turned away from the kingdom. They've killed the king. And so, and so they cry out, what must we do? And Peter calls them to repentance and faith. Faith demonstrated through baptism. And on that day, there are 3,000 that come to faith in Christ. What did Peter do there? He showed them the key to the kingdom. And that key is found in personal faith. In Jesus Christ, which then comes, us, comes for us to see that the church is commissioned as the ambassadors for our King. This loosing and binding work that we have is a work that we are to accomplish under the authority of our King. Matthew 28, when we think of the Great Commission, we often think of verses 19 and 20. Go into all the nations, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. We often think that is the Great Commission, but it misses the most important, I would say, aspect of this Great Commission call. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and in earth are given to who? To Him. That is a statement of a king. Who is the highest authority in a nation? The king. Who is the highest authority among the kingdom of God? Christ. And so he charges his disciples, I have all authority. So under that authority, go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then notice where we find the strength of this. Look, I am with you how often? Always. Even unto the end of the age. Again, we see all of these things beginning to become connected. Jesus said that He's going to build the church. That He's going to build it upon the rock of those who confess Christ as Savior. He, sa- he gives unto those, that church the keys of the kingdom. He gives unto them the responsibility of loosing and binding. But then how is it that they go about this ambassadorial work that they have? Christ is with them. So that what we do as His servants, what we do in pursuing the kingdom, is actually the work of Christ in us. When you share the gospel, that is Christ at work in you. When you see someone come to faith in Christ, did you do that? No. Who did that? Christ did that. We are but messengers. And do you see now how the, cur- the current prophetic work of the church and the current dominion work of the church, proclaiming God's Word and exercising dominion, now come together. Paul puts it this way to the church at Corinth. This is all from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, what, you see what Christ did? He reconciles us. He places us in His kingdom. And then He gives us a service. The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Do, do you notice what He says there twice? Christ gave us this ministry. Christ entrusts us with this message. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus chooses to use His church as His ambassadors. And that's what the conclusion Paul drives to. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And again, who is the one who's making this appeal? It is God making the appeal through us. We plead, we implore people on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
And that reconciliation comes through the work that Christ has done, being made to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Our dominion mandate calls upon us to take the message of Christ. To We have been entrusted with this message. We have been given this ministry. And to plead, implore people on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are calling people who are caught in the domain of darkness and calling them by faith in Christ alone to be transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the reality of how Christ's kingdom grows. He uses us as ambassadors. And so, as ambassadors, we need to prayerfully depend upon Him, praying Your kingdom come. We need to realize that we've been given the keys of the kingdom, that we will bind and loose people as we share the gospel message. And as we have been given this wonderful privilege, entrusted with the message of reconciliation, we are ambassadors for the King. And then there's one final thing, and I won't spend much time here because we've been dealing with this on Sunday mornings recently. But the church finally anticipates the King's return. This really goes back to everything Peter has been calling us to as pilgrims in both his first and second letter. As citizens of the kingdom, we wait the return of the king. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a quick note, that term, Lord Jesus Christ, is so commonplace in the parlance of of what we have in Christianity. And I think it's important we recognize what each one of those things is saying. Lord refers to Him as sovereign, as King. Jesus as the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Christ, Messiah, Savior, Yahweh, Anointed One. Notice that He says He will display this glory at His appearing when? When we want it? No, at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. Peter or Paul here is, is commanding Timothy that as he waits for the return of the king, he is to live his life out keeping the commandment unstained, keeping himself free from approach, from reproach as he awaits the appearing of Christ, the one who is truly the only king. You realize, you realize the incredible privilege we have to know Christ? When I was born... Um, I got a, a letter from Ronald Reagan to my parents. Well, it wasn't a letter to me. It was a letter to my parents. Congratulations on your son's birth. And boy, wasn't that special. I, I, so I tell people jokingly, when I was born, presidents took note. Yeah, right. It was some, some I mean, Reagan has no idea who I am. I mean, he's, he's dead now, but he had no idea who I was in, in my entire life. You know, we live in a society that's so fascinated with celebrity. 
I mean, you know, you, you, would, you would consider it a privilege if a president were to come to your house, let alone imagine if the king of England came. You know what Paul is saying to Timothy here? He says, look, these, these are puny kings. These are puny rulers. There's only one true sovereign. There's only one king of kings and lord of lords, and you know him. By faith, he's in you. And you know what he says to his disciples? You know what he says to the, the twelve before he heads to the cross? Before he dies, before he raises, and before he knows that he's going to ascend into heaven, he says, I'm going to what? Prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will what? Return. And Jesus says one of his motivations for returning is so that where he is, we, his people, maybe also. That He wants to dwell with us. That is remarkable. I can tell you right now, the King of England has no desire to live with me in Carnegie. But the King of Kings desires my presence before Him. And so we wait patiently for the return of the king. We wait patiently for the day when the king will come and give us a new heavens and a new earth. And what is the definition of those new heavens and new earth? It's a place where righteousness dwells. So we wait and hasten the coming coming of the day of the Lord. And as Paul tells Titus, this is our, what? Blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possessions. A kingdom that He owns. A people who are zealous for good works. So notice what Paul charges Titus with doing. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with what? All authority. How can Titus speak in all authority? Because all authority is given to Titus's king. And that king tells Titus, Go in my authority, and I am with you. Let no one disregard you. So Christ is King. He is ruling and reigning today on the throne of David. He is the King of the universe. He is the King of His people. And we, as His people are to prayerfully depend on that kingship. We are entrusted with binding and loosing people as we declare the gospel as those commissioned as ambassadors for Christ and we patiently and faithfully wait for the return of the king. What a king we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for such a King and such a call for us as Your people to exercise dominion among this world as we share the Gospel. Father, You are our Father that is in heaven. Your name is holy. Father, bring your kingdom. Bring your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Lord, as a good king, do not lead us into temptation, Father, but deliver us from our enemy, from the evil one. Give us our daily bread, Father. We know that every good and perfect gift comes from You, the Father of lights. Father, provide for our sustenance. Provide for our physical needs. Father, provide for our spiritual needs. And Lord, may we never forget that Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank You, Father. Thank You for our King. We pray all this in His name, pleading His blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.